0: When you hear the terms ethical jewelry or conflict-free diamonds, what do you think? Do you think of the movie Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio? I'll be honest, that's kind of where I go first. But I will be completely transparent with you. The issues surrounding the ethics in the jewelry industry when it comes to gold and gemstones and diamonds, when it comes to things like that, it's an area I don't know much about. But I know it's an area that is a growing problem, has been a problem for quite some time, and is something that we really need to educate ourselves on because let's be honest, Jewelry is in our lives, from rings to earrings and necklaces. Jewelry is a big part of our culture here and around the world. So doing something about it is something that I just didn't know much about, and today's guest really educated me. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of Still Being Molly, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week I interview an incredible entrepreneur or business owner or nonprofit director or community leader who's trying to make a positive impact, not only through their personal life, but with their career. My goal with this show is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact right where you are. My guest this week is Mark Hoyt, the president of Reflective Jewelry, the only, the one and only, the first and only fair trade certified gold jeweler in the united states he initiated the first ever ethical jewelry blog in 2006 which eventually evolved into fair jewelry action a human rights and environmental justice network mark is incredible incredibly knowledgeable in the area of ethics around gold and diamonds and gemstones and I just ate up this conversation I asked him so many questions some of them felt very elementary but they were questions that I had and so I always like to think hey if I have the question then one of you listening probably does too This episode is one of the most informative episodes I've ever done on the show when it comes to a topic that I just don't know much about. So I hope that this episode is educating for you and one that just really inspires you to begin to ask questions and learn more. So without further ado, onto my chat with Mark. Mark, I am so excited to have you on the show today because you are, I think, thinking back through over almost 150 episodes. I think you might be the first jewelry, like real like jewelry expert when it comes to the materials that we've had. So I am just so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Well, I'm really delighted to be here, Molly. It's it's such a pleasure. So thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Yeah. So, Mark, we're going to have you just start off by giving us the Mark 101. Um, and huh. I would love for you to just tell your story and how you got involved in the industry of ethics surrounding gold and diamonds and jewelry and all that kind of stuff because I will be honest this is a topic I sadly do not know much about other than kind of this the surface research I've done on you know the internet's <laughs> so um just just go ahead and give that uh, information for our listeners as we get started here
1: sure i'll give you a quick rundown about how we started our company Uh, This was back in 1995 and before that I was actually a high school teacher teaching at a school for uh, Native American kids Oh Wow, and yeah, my wife and I just my wife was a a self-taught bench jeweler and we decided to strike out on our own and So I took her 20 designs and started driving around the country selling After I quit my my teaching job and that's basically how we kind of launched the company was my going doing cold sales but we're also not typical jewelers. We were very concerned about the environment. We we're, were practicing permaculture in our home, growing our own food. I'm actually a hunter, so I really wanted to do things, try to live my life according to my personal values. And so, we were at this place uh, in the late '90s where we were restoring this area of a creek on some land that we had with some friends. And it's called the riparian zone in New Mexico. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The riparian zone is is the area of greatest biodiversity. And so it's really important for the ecology in New Mexico, these areas of waterways, because we're a very dry state. And I realized that as we were funding the riparian area in our place, we were actually funding it by destroying some other riparian or waterway in some other part of the world. And it really dawned on us that we are in a highly interconnected world where. The actions we take, even small actions we take here, impact some of the part of the globe where, particularly in context of gold mining, where they're mining and destroying these other riparian zones. So I have been trying to bridge that connection so that the sourcing of my material matches the symbolism of the material, because more than any other product we perhaps even interact with or have, and and jewelry is really fundamental as, as ornamentation. People have been ornamenting and using jewelry for 70,000 years. But the symbolism of jewelry is completely discordant hmm. with the uh, sourcing of jewelry. And that's something I've been trying to address as a pioneer in the ethical jewelry movement and currently as the only fair trade gold jeweler in, in the country. And, and that's very odd. I just want to say that um, we're fair trade certified. We have that kind of yin-yang symbol that you see on chocolate and coffee yeah. and there's there's over 250 certified fair trade gold jewelers in the in the um, in England in the United Kingdom in itself so it's 250 there there's just one here and that says a lot and I've been trying to launch a movement and or trying to anchor a movement that would have hundreds and hundreds of fair trade gold jewelers in this country but it's absolutely despite all my efforts I haven't been able to do that so that is kind of a, a example of of, of the issues I've been trying to work up against for, for decades now.
0: Wow. Now, like I, I mentioned um, before we started recording, I think, you know, when, when when we get into the conversation of ethics surrounding, you know, things like gold and, and diamonds and gemstones, things like that, um, I would say, like, the average consumer if they're not somebody who is really well versed in the area of being fair trade and ethical and all that kind of stuff they just think of the movie blood diamond and that's like the, the 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 only real you know education in a lot of ways that they have and obviously that is a hollywood movie so can you kind of just give if you're having a conversation with somebody who is totally new to this space yes. and they just have no idea what the realities of the sourcing like when you talk about I loved that that quote and I, I didn't I can't say exactly what you said but it was something that's more like the symbolism of jewelry yes is very disconnected from the sourcing of it so if you're talking to somebody uh, about this topic and they are just a novice yes what do you say what do you how do you educate them where do you even begin
1: I, I've got a really good beginning place and I think that your mentioning of, of Blood Diamond film is, is really critical because sure it was just a Hollywood movie, but it actually it actually is what I consider the source or the, the birth point of responsible or ethical jewelry movement in this country mm. because it began to raise awareness. And so what happened was during that time the trade and I was I was at major trade show in, in Las Vegas during when all this was coming down the trade was completely panicked because of this film. But what they had in their back pocket was this thing called the Kimberley certification process, which was an agreement to to take conflict diamonds out of the supply chain. And conflict diamonds is very, very narrowly defined in this context. It, It deals only with conflict. So essentially, in 2011, there were these diamond fields that were Uh, in Zimbabwe. And there were massive human rights abuses. There were people killed, numerous women raped. And this was all going down and huge clashes between the government of Zimbabwe and the people who were mining these fields. And it was a very rich field. The diamonds were very close to the surface of the earth, which and very, very dense. And so all these diamonds in Zimbabwe were all certified as conflict-free because it wasn't considered a conflict between the government of Zimbabwe and these diamonds themselves. So... It's very important to understand the narrowness of the conflict-free uh, definition. But mm. also, in context to the bigger question of the whole notion of conflict free, I just want to go back and and mention one really critical thing that I think will really drive home to your listeners, the importance of this issue and the um, the repugnant nature, <laughs> abomination of what's really going on mm-hmm. and what really motivates me. and I just want to say that between in the 80s and 90s, there are 3.7 million people killed. All right. This is documented. That's a number documented by Amnesty International. And since then, there's been another couple hundred thousand people killed in wars funded by diamonds. Now, there has never been anyone held accountable. There's never been uh, for the decisions to fund those wars during that time, at least at the end of the, the um at, least at the end of the 80s, about 90% of the diamond trade was uh, pretty much owned by De Beers. Now, since that since that time, it's 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 much more diverse. As De Beers did not have that market share. But at that time, diamond trade was pretty much owned by De Beers, and so there were paramilitary groups that were hired by De Beers, and yet nobody, as I said, nobody has ever been held accountable for those deaths. No truth and reconciliation. No no restitution to these impacted communities. Instead, what happened was They created the Kimberley certification process, which was a treaty that was backed by the UN and signed by uh, dozens of countries. And they said, from now on, we're conflict free. We're going to be conflict free. So the question I have, and this is probably probably the most upsetting thing to me, is that there's this kind of thing, which I I would call a consensus trance, where everybody says, we now have these conflict-free diamonds, or, they, or other people say we're beyond conflict-free diamonds. They use this term conflict-free. Conflict-free is the keystone to the marketing in the jewelry industry. Yet, the only way you can have conflict-free is by denying the value of all those lives that were were um, lost in those diamonds. It's like, uh, let me give you an extreme example. Suppose that after World War II, Germany said, well, we're a Western democracy now. Everything that happened in the past, atrocities we committed, we're we're, we're clear of them because we're we're a Western democratic uh, nation. No one would take that seriously. Mm -hmm. Or suppose that, um, yeah, suppose suppose they said that. But in the jewelry sector, because of the incredible power of marketing and this kind of broad, completely consensus about how to handle these issues, these issues were just buried. And so if you have that as a kind of moral basis, if you don't if you have that kind of um, ab- or, you know, this, basically it says that African lives don't matter. That that's basically what conflict free says to me mm. right now when I hear the term. Mm. They don't matter. And and as a result, as a result, the ethics and the so-called responsible jewelry never addresses what I consider the core issue around responsibility, and that is the producer communities.
0: Yeah.
1: Those are the producer communities. Those are the people who, before the, before the conflict diamonds, they're working for $2 a day in these um, diamond fields in Africa. There's about 20%, roughly, of these diamonds that are small-scale miners, from small-scale miners. And also, um, small-scale, gold, uh, small-scale gold miners, which are the source of fair trade, is also the producer community. So what I'm really trying to do is saying that a real ethical jewelry movement creates local economy, regenerative economic models in small scale producer communities. It isn't really something that just benefits large multinational corporations that are primarily, of course, interested in protecting their, their assets. Yeah. Is that is that make sense? To you, yeah. As a kind of introduction as, as, yeah. as where I'm coming from? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Now, and I don't even know if this is a good follow up question, but it's just my natural yeah. question that I that sure. I have. So as far as like Where in the world you, you find, cause you know, I I will just be honest. Like I don't, other than like the, you know, I think of like the gold rush of whatever it was like the 1800s or whatever it was, um, here in the United States. Like I am pretty ignorant as far as like where in the world gold and gemstones and diamonds are typically sourced. Um, and so can you kind of just briefly and maybe this is just more my myself own selfish yeah. question no, is like where questions. where do you find these things around the world So like where are the primary hubs for finding these materials?
1: Let me just frame that question a certain way. There's two types of mining it's called there's one called large scale and there's one called small scale and small scale, let's take the case of gold and then we'll branch into. Uh, diamonds and will also branch into colored gemstones. Okay in gold 20% of the world's gold supply chain is provided by small-scale miners So 80% is provide, provided by large-scale mining, but in the small-scale mining that 20% constitute 90% of the labor involved in mining gold now in gold mining specifically the lives of small-scale miners, gold miners, is characterized by exploitation, poverty, severe environmental contamination, because small-scale gold mining is the second largest contributor of global mercury contamination. So over 40% of the world's mercury contamination is from small-scale mining. The majority is from coal-fired plants. So it's a major contributor of, of, of global mercury contamination because the process of mining gold for small scale people involves mixing mercury with the water that that actually attaches to the gold and then burning off the mercury in frying pans, right? In frying pans and gold, uh, methylmercury is one of the most dangerous of all neurotoxins. So, and these miners might sell, mine their gold and then they're gonna sell it for maybe 70% of its value because they're selling it to some middle person on the street who buys a little bit. So they mine a little bit of gold, maybe like, Three or four dollars worth, and they sell it and they feed their families, and then they do it again. And that's the sort of cycle of, of poverty and small scale mining. And this is happening all over the world in terms of small scale mining and large scale gold mining, too, because gold is widely distributed. You, you have pockets in, in, in uh, South America. The Amazon basin is a terrible catastrophe right now in the Amazon basin, small scale mining, because it's polluting huge amounts of, of, of the Amazon. Um, many, many parts of Africa are highly concentrated in, ke- in Kenya and uh, Uganda and and um, Tanzania, but other parts of, of, of Africa as well, um, and South America, lots of parts of South America.
0: And so that's all gold? And,
1: yeah, small-scale gold. There's gold mining, yeah, and also Mongolia. Gold is widely distributed throughout the world. I mean, it, it, and there's massive amounts of gold still left in this country. I mean, I, I, I've i heard estimates that even in California after the gold rush, maybe there's there's Maybe more than half or three quarters of the gold left, even even in California at this point. So gold is is comes from small scale, and large scale mining, and, and is it, it is okay. widely distributed. And
0: then this is me just. I'm sorry, I'm asking so go many ahead. questions oh, like this. So is gold like is it just, is it found in caves? Is it found like underneath of the dirt? Yeah. Like how do they find it? I mean, this is, right. this is such an elementary question. I'm sorry. No, no, no.
1: It's a good question. <laughs> so there's different types of gold. There's, there's gold that's found it's called alluvial gold, which which might be found on the surface where yeah. you have these people are panning for gold and you can find it in, in rocks. Yeah. Um, and particularly quartz, veins and it runs in, in all kinds of situations. Uh, and, um, uh, I mean, just as, just as an aside, I mean, there was a gold mine that just uh, proposed south of um, Santa Fe about 20 miles. I got, I was, got involved in trying to, in trying to block its, its proposal, and it was blocked. But to give you an the example, there's 160 tons of rock to make one ounce of gold in that mine up there, which would have be been a large-scale mine. Oh, wow. Where in small-scale mining, it's, it's pretty typical, since they're working with shovels, that you might find... Um, a ton of uh, in a ton of rock you might find an of gold so the small scale mining works much more concentrated ore with, within the actual soil uh, so but let me go on let me go on briefly to the other two you talked about diamonds yeah. and, and colored stones Diamonds diamonds are not as, as widely concentrated as as um, as um, uh, gold is but There are, there's considerable diamond resources in Canada right now in the the Northern Territories. I'm trying to remember, but if if I'm remembering correctly, it's about 15, 15, between 15 and 20% of the world's um, global diamond supply chain is from Canada. There's significant diamond resources in Russia and of course um, South Africa as well. And then there are small scale operations that are scattered throughout different parts, regions of Africa. And the, and the final thing is colored gemstones. And colored gemstones, oh, and I wanna say also that in the diamond supply chain, there's about 20% are small-scale diamond miners and and uh, 80% are large-scale. And the di- small-scale diamond mining uh, community is also very, very impoverished. So despite the blood diamond film and all the publicity, there was no real uh, benefit, no real change in, in their circumstances. Uh, and uh, no real ability to actually source some communities that were impacted that that's all been blocked because because a fair trade diamond the notion of fair trade diamond is very 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 um, disruptive to this whole conflict free narrative. Now let me just finish this one thing with the last question which yeah. is uh, gemstones So gemstones ge- colored gemstones are widely widely distributed th- throughout the world and in this case most colored gemstones are supplied by these small scale miners and. You have certain pockets that are, are really well known, such as Burma, which is uh, uh, very, very famous for small-scale uh, ruby mining. Or Sri Lanka has wa- a very big small-scale gemstone mining sector. Uh, Mo- uh, Madagascar as well. Uh, but, but actually, throughout the world, even in, in the U.S., like one of the biggest sources of peridot is is the Apache Reservation in in Arizona, in southern Arizona. So with uh, lar- with with gemstone mining, no one has the exact statistics, but I'll just say ballpark between 70 and 80 percent of, of the gemstones in the world uh, are, are are from small scale sources. And I, I forgot to mention, obviously, at Columbia, too, with its emeralds, there's a lot of small scale uh, operations there as well. So those are the three that that basically gives you a broad understanding. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Now, okay, so another question because Mm. my daughter, so she's five and a half, and (laughs) she loves like Her you know she loves collecting rocks all that kind of stuff and my in-laws have a little home in the mountains of North Carolina and here in the mountains of North Carolina and I'm sure probably in other areas but I've just seen a ton of them here you will see on the side of the road like in little towns you'll see these what they advertise as like gem you know mine your own gemstones shops do you know what I'm talking about. Sure, sure. So, like, what is that exactly? Are those actual gemstones? Are they, like, where do they get those? And and, So, like, my father-in-law will, like, take my daughter, you know, to these little shops and, you know, she gets to you know, I guess, quote, mine your own gemstones. Obviously, she's not going into a mine, but it's like you are digging gems out of the dirt in these shops. And what exactly is that? Where do those come from? Do they come from the mountains? You know, is that just a completely different thing?
1: I don't know because I I think the other way to find out is to ask them where these gemstones really come Mm. from. I, I would suspect that they're kind of local. Yeah. But they could be just throwing garnets from Africa in the middle of that dirt and having him create some kind of entertaining situation for, yeah. for our entire market, like your daughter. So yeah. it's hard to say. No, that's a good hard question. And, that, and
0: that's one that now, I mean, I've just never even thought about before until this conversation. Um, and a lot of times, like, they'll say, you know, like, oh, because there's a ton of caverns and things like that in this sure. area of the country. I mean, I grew up in Virginia, and we of would course. have field trips to Luray Caverns and um, Endless Caverns, and uh, there's, you know, the Linville Caverns here in North Carolina. We've, you know, gone to all these places. And um, around the caverns, they'll talk about, you know, how these types of gems or these types of stones were discovered or found or anything like that and so I just I guess I'm just curious um but that's you know until this conversation it's just never even occurred to me about where to you know if I should ask so um needless to say I will definitely be asking the next time that I'm in the mountains because it's just a you know I I think even if Even if the person there, maybe they don't know, maybe it will get them thinking. Um, That's
1: exactly true. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I think that's why
0: it's important to have these types of conversations. And one of the reasons I love having this podcast is over the past two and a half years, as I've interviewed so many different types of entrepreneurs that are working in various spaces, if at the end of the day, it just gets us thinking, it gets us asking questions, the more that we ask questions, the more that we can begin to start to implement change
1: that's exactly true that's exactly that's that's right on one thing one thing i just want to distinguish and i want to address what you just said yeah one thing one thing i want to distinguish is that that different mining operations have different levels of toxicity like gemstone mining it's pretty much just digging in the earth there's no chemical processes in in, involved i mean i guess you could have fallouts from large-scale gemstone mining operations but the sort of operations that most gemstones, where we source most gemstones, it's basically getting rock, breaking the rock, and then faceting the stones. Yeah. So that's different from gold, which actually involves mercury. Diamonds also, there's no mercury involved. It's just basically gathering a bunch of earth and sorting the diamonds. Yeah. But I do want to go back to your point, your really good point, which it is all about consumer education. Mm-hmm. And so these questions are really, really important. For example... Well, your listeners will go to a jewelry store, and they'll say, well, is this diamond conflict-free? And oh, what is the source of this diamond? And and the salesperson will say, it's conflict-free. It's certified conflict-free. Well, there's a whole bunch of detailed information about this, and I, I didn't mention that, that in addition to jewelry, I, I wrote a 45,000-word journalistic expose and it goes into the, all these issues in great detail. It's called the Ethical Jewelry Exposé, Lies, Damn Lies, and Conflict-Free Diamonds. Mm. And I go, into, I go into these issues. And that's an that's open source document published on, on, my, uh, on my website, uh, my jewelry website. And so I think it's really important because that, that consumers go and ask the question. And the question is, as you said, Molly, it's where do these gemstones come from? And if they can't answer the question, then it doesn't necessarily mean that the gemstone has a bad source, but it definitely means it could have a bad source. There could be child labor. There could be a whole bunch of issues. Or where does your gold come from? Almost no jeweler in the country can answer that. Now, one of the big deceptions, one of the big lies is that ethical jewelers in this country, their big claimed ethics is recycled gold. Now people listening will say recycling is good and it is good. Like if we recycle paper and we will, we reduce the need for paper. we reduce the number of trees. If we recycle aluminum, we reduce the need for aluminum. And, but if we recycle gold, it has no impact on what's going on in the world in terms of mining. And that's the big difference. Let me explain this more clearly with recycled gold. Whether you recycle gold or not, large scale mining is still going to mine gold. Gold is going to be mined by these companies because gold is used as a currency hedge and gold is always going to have value. So, your buying a recycled gold wedding ring has no impact on large scale mining. Now, it has no impact on the small scale mining either because small scale mining is all about feeding the family, surviving. Now, the former, large-scale mining is the politics of greed, but small-scale mining is the politics of bread. We, in order to have a real ethical jewelry movement, have to be able to create change in the market. And we need to focus our energy on policies and and practices that benefit the small-scale miner. Now, the small-scale miner is, as I said, the largest Contributor of gold uh, of mercury contamination and this huge amount of poverty if we instead of bought instead of buying a, a recycled Gold wedding ring which has no broad impact on mining practices if instead we supported a small scale the small scale mining operations such as fair trade gold then what happens is is That this small-scale mining community is uplifted out of poverty and if and also we get the, the satisfaction and alignment of knowing that our purchase actually created real benefit in some part of the world, like specifically the fair trade gold mines are in Peru and there's some opening up in Africa as well. Yeah. So we are creating a new movement. If small, if fair trade gold actually became strong in this country, there'd be hundreds of thousands of small scale miners uplifted out of poverty, mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands. And we see a significant reduction in global mercury Pollution and it would start to create a consumer movement where people actually think about the sourcing of their material in their jewelry and try to create alignment between the sourcing and the actual uh, Meaning of, of the piece so in, in, a, in a more beautiful world we would be able to buy jewelry and know that in buying it we're creating local economy we're alleviating poverty and reducing global mercury pollution and child labor and all these really good things we want to see just by buying a piece of jewelry. And that is possible through fair trade gold. However, if you if you just buy recycled gold, a recycled wedding ring or a recycled uh, piece of jewelry like that, it has zero impact in the world. And it is a narrative that that the entire North American jewelry trade uses to mislead consumers from the real issues of poverty and exploitation in these developing countries, and such as the people who were impacted by the blood diamond, uh, the British communities in in the diamond fields, and also all the gold production. So it is really, really critical to have this kind of education, and unfortunately, it's it's very, very, very difficult to come from, because what we have primarily is, in the US, is a story that is telling something entirely different, uh, particularly with all the major trade magazines and also all the major companies. Uh, than than what is actually taking place in context to responsible or so-called ethical jewelry.
0: I'm sorry to take a quick break from this amazing conversation with Mark, but I just wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsor, and that is The Root Collective. Now, obviously, you know, The Root Collective is no stranger to the show. Bethany Tran, who is the founder and owner of TRC, is one of my nearest and dearest friends. And she was also a guest of the show really early on. And I have been personally a huge fan and supporter of The Root Collective for years. And you can... Pretty much always catch me wearing their incredible shoes. I'm actually wearing my Lee booties in Low right now because they are my favorite. And also they are the most complimented pair of shoes that I own. And what I love the most is that those compliments lead to a story about how my shoes are ethically made, empowering communities and investing in change through job creation. To shop and get your own pair of Root Collective shoes, go to stillbeingmolly.com slash TRC and use the coupon code PURPOSE20 for 20% off your order. That's stillbeingmolly.com slash TRC and use that coupon code PURPOSE20 for 20% off your order. It is an exclusive coupon code just for Business With Purpose podcast listeners. So get yourself some cute shoes. All right, back to my chat with Mark. So... For a lot of the, like, because as an ethical and and fair trade blogger and somebody who really cares about these issues, you know, and a lot of the brands that I work with that maybe they they are a fair trade brand that maybe carries a jewelry line. And it might be more kind of, you know, costume jewelry. It doesn't have diamonds or anything like that in it, but it might be gold plated or gold filled or something like that. How, you know for a lot of these companies i know they're working you know with small batch makers and yeah. things like that how would you as somebody who is well versed in this industry like what would your advice be to a small brand that is working to source their materials in an ethical manner um you know they might be producing you know the jewelry making the jewelry physically in a, in a fair trade or ethical manner yeah. but the, the, they don't know exactly where their materials are coming from what would your suggestion be as far as like baby steps to begin to work towards sourcing right. fair trade materials
1: this, this is a really, really great question, and it, it's multi-layered, so let me just start by saying that there's a difference between fair trade, which is two words, and fair trade, which is one word. So when you see fair trade, which is two words, that specifically refers to a broad movement that where you might have someone who's operating a fair trade store sourcing from perhaps an artisan community in Tasco in Tasco Mexico, Mexico where you have these women who are making fair trade uh, jewelry that they're small the small producers they're working in silver and and, and resins or, or stone and the notion is is that you have a direct connection and your purchases support these these communities of jewelers it could be in different parts, they are in different parts of the world, whether they're in India or, or some parts of Asia, whatever. So this is more like the kind of cottage industry that a lot of online or costume jewelry, where you might see online a lot of so-called, well, where there's a lot of jewelry that's that's marketed as fair trade, two words. Now, fair trade, one word, is a different situation. This is a term that is trademarked by... Uh, Fair labeling organization flow cert. It's called that is based out of Bonn, Germany and When you have and it's a trademark term and it's associated with a logo that looks like a yin-and-yang symbol a little bit and you might see it on chocolate or coffee and Fair trade certified in this case is an entirely different process Because you have audits specific audits that are documented there are standards in these small-scale gold minings mining uh, communities that are fair trade certified where around labor, around, around mining practice, around environment, uh, around pay. In fact, they get an additional $2,000 per kilo that uh, of money that goes into the community that community democratically decides where it goes and typically goes into clinics or schools or things like that. And then not only is it certified and audited at the mine itself, it actually, the certification goes all the way to... Me the jeweler so that fair trade actually sends out an auditor. They fly someone out They flew someone out to my shop where they see all my paperwork and They determine that I've followed the right procedures and that I've separated this goal from my other gold And that I've I've done everything correct and everything lines up in terms of paperwork So that is fair trade one word. It's, it's and fair trade one word. They have primarily until 2011 they were only certifying agricultural products. So fair trade gold is actually very different from the rest of their products. So now getting back to the second part of your question, which was, how does someone start out? Well, if you're, if you're buying this product from cottage industries, there's no need to, I, I guess the best thing is is to actually find out if, if there's actually real difference between what you're doing, if these cottage industry, if, if if the actual product is actually really coming from these industries. But if you're working within some kind of organization, I would think that 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 would be um, determined. But if you're actually a jeweler working with with metals and working with gems, it's a much more difficult process in certain ways. You can actually be certified as a fair trade jeweler and actually start to participate in in the process and, and buying the gold, or you could actually buy the gold without being certified and you actually begin a process of asking that same question that you said before, which is where does this material come from and how do I, how do I implement it and how do I create a jewelry line? And the bigger problem, the bigger challenge actually is to create a jewelry line that sells because just because you're producing material with material that's, that's responsible and ethical and from small scale mining producers, um, communities, it doesn't, that in itself isn't, isn't enough. You have to have, beautiful product that fits into the market you have to develop uh, lines all these things are critical and the fair trade thing is is actually something that is almost like in addition to having really great jewelry we're also able to tell you where this is sourced and, and I just also want to say just, just for clarification that the supply chain is really it's really spotty and it's spotty because in part because the market hasn't really caught up to these ideas and people aren't asking for it but You can't get everything you can't get all products and gold and fair trade. You can't get in fact It's quite limited what I can get and you can't get all gems but and also that that you could say well, I know what where this is coming from and the community where it's coming from and Diamonds, there's no way at this point to source diamonds directly from small-scale mining producers uh, That that you know are coming from these communities and there's no fair trade diamond so we are in the process, and I would encourage uh, your your listenings to find jewelers who who actually are somewhat wading into this wading into this whole guess uh, zeitgeist, but at the same time understand. And if if they're actually doing it, that actually deserves support. That actually deserves support, and and not necessarily to, to expect some kind of perfection, although. In a wedding ring, for example, you you can get pretty close. I mean, uh, I could sell a fair trade gold wedding ring with a sapphire from a small scale mining community in Sri Lanka, or a diamond from Canada, which isn't perfect, but it's, it's not a bad choice. Uh, so it it kind of this every everything that I'm talking about is it's very very situational and yeah. and you see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, you have you mentioned. Um... I guess I actually wasn't during the recording. I guess it was when I first began reading um, your stuff. And and you talk a little bit about the kind of the ethics of lab grown versus mind diamonds and gemstones. So can you just kind of briefly talk a little bit about that, about are you like in favor of lab grown? Is that something that people should look for or is it better to just go with the mind Pieces?
1: This is another really excellent question. And I'll talk specifically about diamonds because lab grown diamonds are actually a huge up and coming market and very, very, very popular with, with millennials because they can cost up to a third less. And there's a company that I'm working with uh, called the Diamond Foundry that I source some of my lab grown diamonds from where they're carbon neutral with how they do it. Um, but lab-grown diamonds are being, are all over the world right now. They're being produced in China they're pre- and, and Russia everywhere. And one would think that it's a good, and, and in some ways I'll, I'll just tell you the, the things that are positive about lab-grown diamonds is obviously you know that, that they don't come from any conflict sources or abuse sources. And, and in some cases, now, in some cases, they can be more eco-friendly, so or less less impactful. Let's say it that way than dug diamonds or diamonds from natural sources. But the issues are more complex. It's it's, it's not really sufficient to say lab grown diamonds are are more efficient than than or more eco-friendly than than dug diamonds because there's so many scenarios where a diamond can come from. I mean, it could come from a small-scale mining. It could become large-scale. You just don't know. So that kind of comparison is a little bit diff- difficult to make. One of the big advantages, obviously, of lab-grown diamonds is, is the price. I, one of the things that those is, is, is most disturbing about lab-grown diamonds and the trend toward lab-grown diamonds is, again, it, it doesn't allow us to address the really critical issues of small-scale diamond producers, the people earlier in our conversation whose communities were destroyed, the 3.7 million people that were killed in, in diamond-funded wars. I mean, would an ethical diamond want to go? Want to be sourced from those communities that are supported to have best practices that they can use the resources of their land to support and raise their families and live in a way that where their basic needs of food, shelter, clothing, education are covered? That would be the ethical diamond. That situation doesn't exist. So you have other, other situations where, oh, oh, let me, let me just say one more thing. So it's very, very ironic that, that, uh, DiCaprio, who, as we know, starred in the blood diamond film yeah. has been supporting lab grown diamonds when, when those diamonds don't address the very people who he acted and was concerned about in that film. I mean, how does that make sense? Why he could take, he could take A couple million dollars, which is a small amount of money for him probably and actually try to support something in the producer communities But instead he's gone with lab-grown diamonds And this is a sort of disconnection that that we see often I often see in the industry these kinds of situations now other diamond sources uh, That the ones that I recommend are are Canadian and again, it's not a perfect situation Yet it's, it's not bad either the mines in Canada are all on First Nation lands up there and they have these these agreements called impact benefit agreements. And so essentially the diamond company says, we're going to mine these diamonds and we're going to give you a percentage of the diamond value of the diamonds back to your community. But there's a huge carbon imprint in mining up in basically tundra uh, permafrost area in, in the in these Northwest territories. It's very, very, very energy energy intensive. And if you look at those mines, you'll see these big holes in these very pristine areas. Now, they're very highly regulated, and and the, the Canadian diamond industry in general is very, very concerned and careful about its branding and making sure the diamonds are, are properly, the mines themselves are properly monitored. And yet, you know, the general impact in the Pacific Northwest Territories around ecology is is really very, very disturbing. There's been reductions of caribou herds, et cetera. So, and I, and I also want to mention that that often the impact benefit agreements are not what the tribal tribes expect. And let me give you one example of that. And that there was the uh, diamond mine in uh, north of, of James Bay. And it's run by De Beers, it's called the Victor Mine. And there's this Cree, community, I think it's, I, if I pronounce it right, Attawapetech Cree community up there. And they're about, they they gave the land to the, the to De Beers, to mine. And this Cree community, their articles in the last couple of years, uh, I haven't read one recently, where it's the suicide capital of, of Canada, <laughs> this Cree community. And there's wow. massive, massive struggles in that community. And so well, I was interviewing someone who was involved, a traditional person up there. And he was asking the question, how is it that we're right next to a diamond mine and and not really benefiting from, from our resources? And a, so a lot of times the resources can go into governments and then there's a lot of conflict whether the resources are getting distributed in, in a way that the people want. And so often the mines go into these indigenous communities and what happens typically is the communities are split there's a, there are those who want development and those who want jobs and those who are saying we're already wealthy we're already good we don't want this in our community because it's going to upset our traditional ways of life and so often these and this is typical all over, all over the world and small scale i mean these when when a large scale mining operation goes into these communities it often creates a huge amount of havoc and and turns brother and sister against each other so, in context to uh, natural versus lab-grown, I guess there's, there's other situations too, there's other lab-grown diamonds that, that, I mean, sorry, there's other natural diamonds that are mined in Botswana, and that the Botswana situation is very, very interesting, and, and let me just give you sort of the pros and cons about that, but basically, Botswana is one of the most successful African countries in terms of developments, and a lot of it's because of the diamond mining, and they own majority share, but the Beers owns the minority share, so there's the question of whether you want to buy a Diamonds from the De Beers supply chain. And personally, in context to what their history is in the past, I, I don't recommend it to my customers. So you begin to see that these issues are highly, highly complex. And it's difficult just to say one thing's good or one thing one thing's not good. There's a lot of factors. Price, how you feel about the past, all these things playing to, to how you make a decision.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, it's, and I think that that goes... Just for just about every issue, when it comes to the way that we manufacture our goods, the way we purchase our goods, the way right. that we source our materials. I mean, we could get into a whole discussion around you know the cotton industry and all those exactly. things. Like, there's just so many things um, to to take into account and. It's not going to be perfect. We didn't get into the mess overnight, and we're not going to get out of it overnight. But, um, you know, I always tell listeners or readers of my blog or people that I connect with online or even just, you know, in my own circle of friends and family when a lot of times people will feel really overwhelmed. And they just think, well, like, oh, I can't, you know, this is just... This is one more thing I have to care about or this is yeah, one more thing yeah. I have to I feel like I have to do or yeah. whatever it is and I just say you know it doesn't it doesn't have to be it's just all in your perspective and it's taking baby steps and it's just asking questions. You don't have to completely overhaul your entire life overnight. You don't have to yeah. completely overhaul you know, you don't have to get rid of everything you own or like, you know, get rid of your wedding bands. Like that's, that's, that's not the point. It's all in just beginning to take baby steps one little thing at a time. And the more that you begin to educate yourself, you know, the more that you can make change. And I always, I almost kind of relate it to like losing weight. Like if you want to start exercising and eating, eating better, you don't just, you know, if you go on a 30 day crash diet and you work out every day for 30 days like that's not sustainable you're going right. to crash and burn and so what do you do you just begin to drink more water and then you maybe go to the gym a couple days a week and then you you know maybe try to eat more vegetables or you eat out less or whatever it is like you just little bit little by little and then you know the next thing you know 2 years later all of a sudden you feel better and you're healthier and you've it's become a lifestyle change It's never going to happen overnight. And so it's the same kind of thing. And that, for me, when I started in 2011 is really when I began to educate myself more on the areas of fair trade and shopping ethically. And so since 2011, you know, it's been an eight-year journey for me of just little by little beginning to introduce, uh, new brands into my life and, um, changing my buying habits and being more thoughtful when I gift things and, you know, just educating people on, you know, the, the realities of the world around us, um, and not shaming anybody or anything like that, but just changing my habits little by little over time. Um, and it, really does add up so but I just really appreciate your perspective and your insight into this issue because like I said at the beginning it's just one that I'll be honest like I don't know much about and so you've really inspired me to begin to ask more questions and begin to look at this more um, and begin to just share the information when I can um, and, and and try and learn more about um, what you're doing, and um, and the jewelry industry as a whole, um, and and not like limit my <laughs> my education from the movie Blood Diamond. So yeah, uh,
1: no, you know. yeah, it, it's it's these issues are really very very difficult to penetrate. Which again is why I wrote this expose, which is available online. It's Ethical Jewelry Expose. But one thing I want to just say in response to this is this whole process that you're in, and many of us are in. I can articulate it simply by saying that it's really about aligning our heartfelt values with our economic decisions. And we don't have always the opportunity to do that in an easy way, and sometimes it's simply too expensive to do that. And one of the questions you didn't ask me was, is fair trade go more expensive? And I'd say, in my case, it it is not, yeah. or very minimally so. In, in many of my pieces, it is not. But this whole process of, of moving toward that direction does involve openness and inqu- inquiry and a willingness to open your eyes and saying, well, where does this commodity come from? Because the way our, our economic system is set up is we are not, or the impact of our, of, of our choices is hidden from us. The externalities are hidden from us. The supply chain is hidden from us. The conditions of where materials are gathered at source are hidden hidden from us typically. We can look at a really good model like, like a farmer's market. If you go to a farmer's market and you talk to the farmer you know that this farmer is, is doing really good practices, maybe they're organic or, or maybe they haven't got the certification but they're not spraying their crops and you have a relationship with that farmer, and you know he's taking care of the land in a really good way, and you're supporting them, that farmer, and supporting your local economy, and that money stays in your community as opposed to a lot of it being taken out of your community if you're just buying from a store that is a large supermarket. So we begin to take things down to local economy and slow economy, and we develop relationships with, with the things that sustain us, and there's a broad movement that is taking place that where a lot of people producing goods are telling us where their sources are from. I mean, you can look at, at certain companies. Patagonia stands out as, as an example where they're really upfront about how they source and what they do in their recycling and how they, they min, minimize. Oh, Patagonia' is an expensive brand. but uh, there are other other companies as well. This is a big big trend because we're all hungry for ways to make this connection and know that we're living in a way that that provides for our future. And in context of jewelry, this is a very, very, very new movement. And yet at the same time, it's become a very hot trend. And now if you're buying something that's, that's just for uh, maybe not an expensive piece, then maybe it's a little bit harder. I mean, there are sources, but... Maybe you buy a piece of re- something that that is recycled silver, which is better than non-recycled. At least at least someone's making a statement. But if you're looking for something like a wedding ring, now this is this is something that's highly symbolic, and and you may want to do a little bit more research because you're wearing something in your finger that that is carrying all the symbolism. And if you can align the symbolism of the wedding ring with with your concern for the future and wanting to Make the world a more beautiful place in the future. That that makes a lot of sense, and so I think that it goes back to the question that you that you keep asking, which is like, where does this come from? And that kind of education and, and asking your jewelers that, and it helps the jewelers too because they begin to see, wow, there's there's an issue in the consumer market, and the consumers that that they're wondering about these things, and maybe I've got to start paying attention. So we need we need people who with, who are educated on these issues to actually start talking to jewelers and start asking for it and start looking for it online. Uh, and hopefully the issues that I, I've raised and, and we've covered some really kind of core, core points in our discussion, hopefully that will give your listeners enough basic education to start this journey of understanding a little bit more about ethical yeah. sourcing in, in jewelry.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Well, I am going to make sure to include the links to, obviously, your website, Reflective Jewelry. um, And then, in addition, I will include, for the listeners, a link to the Ethical Jewelry Exposé that you wrote. Um, So that will all be included in the show notes. So for those listening, make sure you check out the show notes for all of those resources. Um, And, again, just begin to ask the questions, just begin to you know, start with you know, reading something like Mark's expose um, and just beginning to educate yourself in these areas is so, so, so important. Um, Mark, I am so grateful for your perspective today, and I'm so grateful for you answering my sometimes very elementary questions. But sometimes, you know, I, I guess it's also the former high school teacher in me that I always said to my students like there's no stupid question because there's probably somebody else in the room that has that question so exactly that's kind of the perspective I take and sometimes on the show I feel silly answering maybe or asking maybe an elementary question but I'm like you know what there's got if I've got it then that means somebody else listening probably has that same question too so I appreciate uh. you so much um, in just answering that and for your knowledge in this area uh, thank you so so much uh, this was just such a joy to have you on the show, and I really appreciate it.
1: Well, I I, I want to thank you as as a former high school teacher myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I think this I think all your questions were great, and I think the same way you do. <laughs> um, and I, I just I just want to add one more thing about what I'm doing to your listeners. And and one of the th- struggles that I've had is getting the word about about fair trade gold. And so one of the things that I'm doing that that there might be people in this audience that, are, that might be able to take advantage One of the things that we're doing is we have this program called Giving Back. And we will give 20% of sales from our jewelry to your nonprofit organization. And this is a way of working at a grassroots level to get the word about, about fair trade gold so that we're having trouble getting the word out through conventional means. So we will give 20% back. So, so, so this, this works for arts organizations, schools or any sort of organization that that is building your community. And we already have some really great people who are doing this, like uh, Catholic Relief Services USA, they endorsed us and we had to go through a big screening to to be one of their trading partners. We also have arts organizations locally where I am, like Santa Fe uh, Symphony has just joined us and uh, New Mexico Environmental Law Center, Revolutionary Love Project down in San Francisco. So if you're an organization that wants to support fair trade and also, perhaps raise some money, then we're happy to to work with you. You just have to contact us uh, through our website and uh, we can work that we can work with uh, perhaps raising some funds through our company and also spreading the word about fair trade. And we have a whole blog post about how this works. But we make it very easy. We provide all all the images, all the social media content, everything. So that's just something we're doing because even though we're even though we're a pioneer, in this movement, we're actually just a small jewelry designer jewelry studio of like um, five people. So, so uh, we're trying to get the word out with well, what we're doing, and also trying to put more money in, into communities that are sharing our values of trying to create this more beautiful world. We all know is possible. And uh, I just want to also thank you, Molly, so much for this invitation. It, it's 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 um, it's a great opportunity to to. To be on your, on your program and share what I know to your listeners. So thank, thank you so much. Oh,
0: absolutely, it's my pleasure. Uh, well, Mark, thank you again so much. You're incredible, and I'm just cheering on the work that you're doing. And I know that um, I, I will love to look back in you know 20 years when there are more fair trade certified jewelers here in the united states and to say hey i knew the pioneer of all of that so i really appreciate you. your time thank
1: you thank you so much thank you so much
0: i am forever grateful to mark for educating me in this area. This is a conversation that just really got me thinking about how I can begin to ask questions from the jewelers that I purchase jewelry from or just beginning to share the information that I have and I for sure am going to be reading Mark's exposé, his ethical jewelry exposé. So, like I mentioned in the show, I will include all of those things in the show notes. But I would love to know what you liked about this episode or maybe something that you learned. So, let let me know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast on Instagram or Facebook, and don't forget to use that hashtag #BusinessWithPurposePodcast. As always, a huge, huge thank you to our sponsor, The Root Collective. Visit stillbeingmolly.com trc and use the coupon code Purpose twenty for twenty percent off your order. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you're a first-time listener of the show, welcome. Be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring incredible entrepreneurs and business owners who are literally changing the world with their businesses. And if you're a regular listener, thank you so much for tuning in week in and week out. Thank you for your support. Be sure to head on over to iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure you're subscribed to the show. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure that you never miss a new episode of the podcast. And while you're there, would you mind taking a moment to leave a review of the show? leaving a review of the show helps me to know what you're liking and how the show is personally impacting you this show is edited by my incredible husband and executive producer John Stillman with support from Mark Haywood and the music is by Mark Killian of Third Wheel Media lots of Marks today Mark Hoyt Mark Killian Mark Haywood all the Marks so as always thank you so much for listening now go do something good with purpose on purpose on purpose